This is the Saskatchewan Real Estate Podcast. My name is Ron Caroni, your Saskatchewan mortgage professional. This week on the podcast, we're chatting with Scott Crone. He is down living in Chicago. He is an asset manager uh, specializing in self-storage. He's been featured on such news outlets as NBC. And today we're chatting about a proven strategy for real estate investing, as well as digging into some self-storage and things you might not have known about that type of investing. Hope you enjoy. This is the Saskatchewan Real Estate Podcast, the show that highlights Saskatchewan real estate. Looking to buy your first house, your next investment property? Subscribe to never miss an episode. Here's your host, Ron Caroni. Hello and welcome to the Saskatchewan Real Estate Podcast, Scott. So happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate going north of the border. <laughs> yeah. You are based in Chicago, so it's it's fun to have an American uh, person here uh, giving us a little perspective on real estate investing today. Before we dig into our main topics today, Scott, just give us kind of the Coles Notes overview of how you got into investing. I got into investing because um, my parents showed up my senior year of college and asked me what I planned on doing. And I, I thought I was going to go in the family business, which was die casting. And they told me that we were going to, they were selling the business. So there was no hope for me in the family business. So that, that was a, a change in my path. And um, I began pursuing my master's in architecture and that got me involved in uh, my path towards real estate investing. Fantastic. Scott, today we're talking about the four proven real estate investing strategies. So let's start it off right away. What is number one on that list? Well, I think, you know, people say it's important that, uh, you know, you go into a deal and you make sure that you have a good end price to, to make sure that you make your money. But I would argue that you make your money on the acquisition price. So you, you, the whole deal is predicated on what you buy it for, not what you sell it for. And Correct. so if you, if you overbuy, then you, you're really fighting upstream from the beginning. Um, so we're always looking at that first. That's our first and primary goal. The second thing, you know, this is where my architectural roots come in is, the more that you can change the program, the more value that you can add. So for instance, if I'm looking at buying a condominium and I want to fix it up, there's only so much I can do to the condominium, right? Within the marketplace, I can, you know, change the cabinets, change the countertop, change the appliances, but it's all relative. But if I take a property that has a small little house on it and I can tear it down and build a bigger home, then I'm changing the program. Or if I add an addition or add a second floor, then I can in, you know, most dramatically change the value of that property because I'm adding value to it. So I'm always looking to add value. Um, when we also look to buy, we also want to make sure that we're buying below replacement cost. So for instance, if I'm buying a building that we're going to convert into self-storage, you know, I'm, I'm looking at not overpaying, but then I'm also saying if I can buy it below the cost that if it would, if I had, if it burned down and I, or, you know, tornado or whatever came and blew it all away and I had to rebuild it, could I build it? Can I buy it for less than what I could rebuild it for? So that's, that's the number three. And then the fourth one is we look at the capital stack, making sure that the capital stack is advantageous and that we have ways in which we can enhance that capital stack for our investors, whether that's through historic tax credits, cost segregation, um, you know, we, we opportunity zones, which is a, a is a tool here in the United States, 
But these are all tools that we look at to utilize in order to enhance the capital stack. So those are the four main things that we look at. And it doesn't, you know, it's not significant or exclusive to just commercial property. We do that for when we're, when we've worked on residential and, and multifamily and, and also commercial property. So it applies across the board. Wonderful. So we have a young investor in Saskatoon. He's strolling down the street and he sees the, this property that he thinks would be a good acquisition below cost and he could value add. Are there some things that he's looking for, you know, uh, in, in a, buying a single family house to, to keep an eye out that would make it a good deal for him, Scott? Well, first of all, I would make sure of the zoning. So if you think you can value add, you'd have to go and look at what is allowed to be built, right? So you could have the grandest plans to build something, but if you don't, you can't legally get the, the rights to do that, then that impacts the value. Then the second thing is, you know, looking at the market and seeing what else has sold that comparably to what you've been trying to do or what you want to do to make sure that you're not, um, you know, the biggest, you know, let's just say the biggest house on the block. It's always good to have a presence. Now, we have been the biggest house on the block, but when we, because the block was only three homes. So when we were the first one coming in, we were doing it, but we expanded the radius to, let's just say a half a mile around the house or, you know, a kilometer or so, or a couple of kilometers to make sure that we're not the biggest one in the neighborhood. No one wants to be the first, but they're willing to be the second and fourth. So if you are a young investor and you're just starting out on your investing career, you don't know a lot of this stuff. It's hard to know about zoning. Maybe you don't know the right city officials. Uh, what, what is your advice to someone in, in gaining this knowledge, Scott? Well, just research. I mean, anybody, the first thing that I do when, I mean, we get people who send us properties across the United States and we've had investors from Canada that have worked with us in the past. And the first thing that we always, and we've looked at properties in, in Canada as well and help people evaluate properties. Um, for a while, I was doing a lot of coaching and we had, um, I had customers and clients in Toronto, the Toronto market. And so we would always say, and the question became, how do I find this out? Well, most municipalities have it all online. So if you go online and, you know, if you pick your town or your city and you go to their code, or go to their website, you can usually scroll through their uh, webpage and find out what their zoning code is. And a lot of it is all, all uh, categorized and all on the web now. Because some of these are like, you know, 60 chapters of codes, not just for zoning, but how the entire municipality is run. And you can skip all that and go directly to the zoning and begin reading the definitions and then finding where your property is and how it's zoned. And you can find the restrictions on that. So that is the first place we always begin when we begin looking at analyzing a property. It's the same process. You know, we'll go to that local municipality. It might be a Providence. It might be a county. It might be any of those things. And finding it out where the code is, and then begin, you know, digging into that to find out what the zoning is. Fantastic. Expand on us a little bit what you do, Scott. I know we chatted a little before we started the interview on uh, the um, self storage uh, uh, factor of your business. Can you expand on that for us? Sure. We really have three companies that we are primary companies. So there's Coded Design Build, which we facilitate real estate development, the design, and then the build of different projects for our customers. Then we have Coda Management Group which is our investment portfolio where we are buying either underperforming commercial buildings and converting them into self-storage or we're buying underperforming self-storage facilities. And when we say underperforming, it might be because we can add on to them. It might be that we can um, build new or it might mean that we are just managing them better. So for instance, if someone hasn't raised the rents in seven years, we're coming in, buying the facility, raising the rents, 
improving the management and then, you know, selling the facility. Why would someone, or pardon me, Scott, if I can hop in, why would someone get involved with self-storage as opposed to just going into the, you know, uh, a traditional real estate investment route? Is there, are there some major benefits to doing self-storage? Well, what do you call the traditional real estate routes? So I would say a lot of people in in Saskatchewan or the people that I talk to, when we talk about real estate investing, it's buying a single family home, either in the city that you live in, maybe at the lake, and you're renting that out. Now, that would be what I would consider or what a lot of people here would consider like a traditional real estate investing route. Okay, very good. So in, in the case of that, we have to analyze what the market is. So if you're in more of the country or rural area, and you have a lot of places to store stuff, self-storage might not be the best investment. But think if you're more of an, you know, in a, a major metropolitan area or suburban area, or that you have a lot of things that you're trying to get out of the weather. So for instance, if you're in Saskatchewan and you have a lot of toys or boats that you don't want to get ruined by the winter and you need a place to store them, but you don't have the facility yourself, that would be a need for self-storage. But a lot of our customers and clients uh, live in apartments, live in condominiums, or are, are businesses that have needs for storage. And so 10% of the U.S. population utilizes self-storage. But self-storage is close to a $100 billion industry in the United States. So it gives you a perspective of how big it is. Now, how does it differ than what you were classifying it? Well, ultimately, we're renting the same thing. We're renting a box, right? So your box of a home is a little bit more com- you know, complex than my box of self-storage. I don't have plumbing. I don't have electricity. Um, sometimes in our, our urban settings, we have climate control, which means we're providing heat and, and cooling during the summers to make sure that the things don't expand and contract as much. We maintain a consistent environment in there to protect the, the goods. But bottom line is I have storage. My storage is renting a space without tenants. So I don't have to deal with toilets. I don't have to deal with plumbing. I don't have to deal with you know, uh, a kitchen or bathrooms or those sorts of things, it's a much more simplistic model. So if I'm looking at it, I can get a higher rental rate per square foot on our storage than you would be able to get on a house or an apartment or a condominium. But my unit cost in terms of my operation is far less because I, I, my two biggest expenses are my sales staff and real estate taxes. I don't have much maintenance. I don't have much, you know, utilities because when people leave in the hallways, all the lights go off. You know, when they start walking through the hallways, the lights go on and they stay active for five minutes and then they automatically turn on. So I don't have to worry about a tenant who rented my home and then left the electricity on, and, you know, like left 10 lights on while, you know, no one's there for a week. And then I'm paying a huge bill or sets the, you know, the, the heat up to like 90 degrees and they, and they're during the winter and I'm paying a huge gas bill. So I don't have those sorts of things. I don't have those sorts of problems. That's a lot of positives for self-storage. Are there any negatives or are there any challenges as you're approaching a, a self-storage investment strategy? Well, there, there are certainly challenges. I mean, you know, life is full of challenges. And I think that's where we grow in life is overcoming challenges and learning how to deal with them. So, you know, I don't think there's any real estate model that is free of challenges. I think that's, that's not realistic and that's not really the marketplace. But there are different challenges. So like, for instance, when we're going and trying to build a new one, a lot of municipalities don't appreciate it because they think that it doesn't bring in the revenue or the need that they're expecting or desiring, but they're not recognizing that as people move back into the cities from you know, a suburban or urban market, they're downsizing. 
and they don't have as much storage. And so self-storage fills that purposes. Or, you know, we certainly see with the supply chain issues here um, in the current economic market where vendors like we're, we're building right now and our carpenters can't find liquid nails, which is a glue that they have to use to, you know, they apply that before they do the framing. Well, there's a three month back order on liquid nails. So what are people doing? They're just buying liquid nails and then putting it in storage to make sure that they have it when they need it or sure. conduit or, you know, copper wires or those sorts of things. So that's where the smaller businesses are using self-storage because they can't rent a for, afford to rent a whole warehouse. But if they rent a hundred square feet or 200 square feet, you know, for $150 a month, it's a lot more economical for them. I've heard this before, and I'd be curious to get your opinion on it, Scott, that self-storage also performs very well in bad economic times, meaning that when people have to sell a bigger home and they downsize, they don't necessarily want to get rid of all their stuff. So the option then is to move it into self-storage. What can you say about self-storage in a time of maybe negative economic uh, futures? So my career began during the early 90s when we had massive inflations. And then we had um, the internet housing, the internet bubble burst. And then we had the housing market burst and we had 9-11 in between those two things. And then we've had this whole pandemic issue thing. So we, we've been through, you know, a good four economic downturns within the economy. Um, you know, the last one, I'm not going to call a recession because it was, you know, only one month of downward trend as opposed to two consecutive economic quarters. But for, you know, there's, a heavy downward pressure on the economy. And we went back and studied how self-storage performed in each of those cases. There was initially a slight dip in occupancy and then a robust gain. And in any of those cases, they never drop below 90%. Wow. So the bottom line is that self-storage helps people address change in their life. And typically change is negative and they don't want to deal with a lot of the pain or the, 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 of the, the situation that's going on. So that could be like a divorce, it could be death, it could be, I, you know, I am having to move really quickly, dislocation. So for instance, think about when the pandemic hit, all these college kids like had to, you know, leave immediately and they had to throw their stuff and they didn't want to take it all back home. So they rented self-storage facilities. And then obviously if you're, if you're rehabbing a house or moving, um, those are other locations that, you know, I have this situation, I don't want to deal with this situation. So I'm going to economically rent a space and then it will give me time to address the concerns that I have. And then when I'm, when I'm in a better place, I can address having what things I want to sell, what things I don't need right now, you know, what things I do want to keep and then how am I going to manage them? And so it buys people time. And that's the biggest thing with self-storage, but our typical client stays for about three years. Interesting. That's the, that's the metric on that one. In most of our locations, it's three years. Fantastic. So Scott, just expanding on it a little bit for someone who's living in Saskatoon, um, what can we say about the, the, the services that you would offer? Um, is it primarily investing in American uh, projects or is there any type of Canadian aspect to, to the services that you offer? Well, self-storage is expanding into the Canadian market. Um, you know, people tend to think of self-storage as an American issue because of consumerism. But that's really not the case. So as the cost of land becomes more and more expensive and people can't afford as much home or office or space, and more importantly, how people are utilizing their residences now in America in the pandemic has dramatically changed. It's, our homes have now become offices. Our homes have now become schools. Our homes have now become gyms. They become all these different things. And so we need more space to facilitate these things. 
And that means that we have to find other ways in which to unload what's in our homes so that we have the space to do that. And so how those happen, if, people, if the market is expanding in self-storage in Canada, we'd be happy to talk with someone about how to facilitate that. If they come across a building which they think might be good, or if they think, find a piece of property which they uh, want to potentially develop, we can help them do those sorts of things. If they're looking to, to buy in America and buy a self-storage facility, we can certainly help them identify what would be the most appropriate for them and what they're trying to accomplish because there are different classes of self-storage, like there's different classes of multifamily. And it's not based upon good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. It's just based upon product type. And mm. so there's different aspects of self-storage. There's like class C, class B, and class A. And class C is like first generation self-storage, more in the rural area, a drive up facility that's not climate controlled, smaller, and it's typically operated by the owner. Um, we call that a class C and it would, that'd be equivalent to like a penny stock. If someone is looking to get into a little bit larger, more urban, maybe suburban type market, um, that would be class B and it'd be larger between maybe hundred to 300 units. And it's like a drive up facility, maybe climate controlled. And that would be a class B and we would call that like a blue chip. So it's gonna have a good consistent yield and rate of return. And then class A would be an urban, either new or conversion, larger, typically around four to a thousand units and um, fully climate controlled and you can drive into the facilities. So you can fully drive in, the doors come down, you wow. can leave your place unlocked, move your stuff to your locker, your dry, safe and secured environment. And that's a class A and that's like a growth stock. So you're gonna see both appreciation and cash flow. And so whenever someone comes to us and say, I want to get involved with self-storage, we always ask them, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you looking to do? Because we want to make sure that it aligns. We don't want to give, there's not one answer for everybody, but it, you know how we can help them facilitate it. You know, we helped one client um, buy their first facility in Maine, and that's our project in Maine. It's a smaller one. We're expanding it. Uh, the one that we're currently under contract to close and probably close within the next 30 days is in Michigan, and it's a class B. And then the other ones that we've developed have all been class A's. So we have, you know, all three classes of self-storage in our portfolio. Awesome. I really appreciate that. That's very fascinating. Before we get to your contact deal, Scott, I just want to ask you if you could go back and give a younger version of yourself some advice, what would that advice be? Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it was stupidity or arrogance, uh, but starting my own company at 28, that, that took a lot of uh, gumption. And so I would probably say, you know, slow down a little bit. You know, you got plenty of time, you know, make sure you learn a little bit more and, uh, you know, go through a little bit more processes before you begin. Don't, don't try to rush it. It seems like it's worked out pretty well for you, Scott. If someone does want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do so, Scott? I appreciate that. Um, they can reach us out at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. That's info at codamg.com. And if they reference this show, we will send them a feasibility report that we that we have hired and performed on one of our properties to help us analyze and explain why that's a good market. But the report is like 175 pages. And what's really good about it is it explains self-storage, not just in that location, but in the, across the marketplace to get a sense of all the different factors and what to look for and, and what the economics of it is. I mean, if, if I'm comparing self-storage to like multifamily, it's like 10% of the investment. So if, you know, when I, my first project that I worked on was a hundred million dollar project, we sold it for a hundred million dollars and it was 400 units of townhomes, condominiums, and single family homes. 
you know, we have six, seven, 800 units and my cost basis is like 10% of less than 10% of that. And so you can do a lot, have a lot more flexibility and a lot more in the marketplace with self-storage compared to multifamily. Wonderful. Last word to you, Scott, anything else to add on uh, real estate investing, self-storage before we wrap it up? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks for coming on and, and sharing this time. Um, you know, so if, if people have questions, I'm more than happy to, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need a property. We'll need a location because when we specifically look at a market, we're looking at a three to five mile radius. If it's out in the country, what we're looking for is no more than a 10 or 15 minute drive. You know, people don't want to drive more than 10 or 15 minutes for their storage facility. If I can just quickly, Scott, is there a population amount that you would generally recommend for self-storage or is there some metrics that someone maybe considering this would say, okay, I live near a place like this and I'm thinking about this. There are some metrics and it's, um, we look at the, the square foot of lockers per capita. And typically where supply equals demand in the United States is around seven square feet of lockers per capita. We're, we're seeing on the East Coast is it's up around nine, 10. In Florida, it's going as high as 13, which we feel is like way too saturated. Um, so we're always looking for markets that is below seven square feet of capita, per, a square, seven square feet of lockers per capita. Now, let's put it in perspective. If, you're, if you live in a town that has a thousand people and the population is not changing, probably having a self-storage facility of a thousand lockers is not going to make a whole lot of sense because not everyone's going to buy it, right? So then the question is, do you want to have one that's like 10 or 15 or 20 units? Hmm. It might be good. You know, that might be a, an appropriate size, but you have to look at what the market is in that, in that area. So what we tend to look for is, you know, a hundred thousand square, hundred thousand people and growing. Um, some of our facilities have almost over half a million people within three miles. And so, you know, when we bought that one, we were half a million people within three miles 66% of them were renters and the square foot per capita was 1.6. So we knew that there's plenty of demand within the marketplace in order to fulfill our need. If we came in and built, you know, 600 lockers, we knew we could fill it up. Awesome. I love that. Thanks so much for doing that last little bit for me, Scott. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for checking out this episode. If you enjoyed it or found it informative, please consider hitting the like and subscribe button. If you're looking for more information on Saskatchewan real estate, please check out my social channels in the description. As always, I'm Ron Caroni, your Saskatchewan mortgage professional. Have a great week.